Welcome to Grace Community Church. We are so glad that you have chosen to worship here with us today. If you're part of the long-term family at Grace, it's so good to see you. If this is your first time ever, we're thrilled to see you and, and grateful that you are worshiping with us. It's an interesting week for you to be worshiping with us when we introduce an amendment to the Constitution, church constitution and bylaws. We do not do that lightly as you can imagine. I'm not sure if you realize just how momentous this week has been for Christians. Uh, Extremely well said by Mr. French that the battle is between Christians and if I could remember how what he said that was so well said. What was it, Jim? Yeah, it's up here. Okay, this is... uh, a battle between, um, it was brilliant what the man <laughs> Well, moving along. The Supreme Court heard arguments this week about whether or not states have the right to define marriage as the union of one man and one woman, or if same-sex unions must not might, must be considered as marriage in the same way heterosexual unions are considered marriage. New soundboard, we're working out the kinks, so sorry about that. There are so many different ways that you could articulate the issues at hand that pertain to the definition of terms and issues of church and state. But in the interest of time, I'm going to assume that you get it. You get the point, and you know that we may well need to address this more specifically in the future. The elders have been praying and discussing the amendment that we're putting before the church this morning for some time. And it's fitting that it would fall on this day. Some have characterized the deliberations at the Supreme Court, the deliberations this week, and the the decisions that will be made sometime this summer um, as momentous as Roe v. Wade, and I would suggest that the consequences for believers could be greater than the legalization of abortion in our land, though do not misunderstand me. What has happened since Roe v. Wade and the millions of innocent lives that have been legally ended is a horrific thing. But where we are going as a church. Should I switch microphones? Okay. Where we are heading in our relationship with the government could be far uh, more significant than it has been in the past. Uh, Let me just say this. If you have had an abortion... Or if you struggle with same-sex attraction, no one here believes that the gospel thinks less of you than anyone else. We are all equally needy before the Lord. We are all sinners before God. And we need our sins forgiven. And they are forgiven through repentance and faith and completely forgiven. One of the interesting dichotomies of our day is that 
Everybody needs to be okay no matter what they do. Everything goes, anything goes. And yet, if you do the wrong thing, you're destroyed. I mean, absolutely, your life is over. If somehow you get out of step with this idea that anybody can do anything. Well, that doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. If you've been keeping up with the debate this week, you will have heard calls for Christians to participate in civil disobedience. We talked about this at our elders meeting this week. We're not exactly sure what we're supposed to be involved in. Or that believers should withdraw from society, everyday life of our nation, and live as a subset of society. That's been going on for a while, but... You will have heard the Solicitor General of the United States admit that the court, should the court rule that it is illegal to deny same-sex marriages, then it is indeed possible that religious organizations would lose their tax-exempt status if they refuse to acknowledge the law of the land. So, if your gift to Grace Community Church or to any other Christian organization, Campus Crusade, uh, mission organization, whatever. If it's no longer tax deductible, would you give it? That may be your what you have to decide very soon. I, I don't know if I have ever felt more connected to the body of Christ. And I'm not just talking about to, to this local church or even all of those who are alive today, but to the body of Christ through the ages, stretching back to the beginning of the church in the first century. The church has always belonged to God's kingdom, yet we have operated in this kingdom, the kingdom of this world that is controlled by the prince of the power of the air. We will function in this dual system until Jesus returns and reigns supreme. So I was reading through the book of 1 John this week. I just read through the whole book. It's, it's, you can get through it fairly quickly. And you could take a long time just reading through it if you wanted to. But I was struck by the apostle's thoughts right at the very end of the book. 1 John 5, 19 to 21. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then this seemingly odd conclusion to the book. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Actually, it's a very fine conclusion, but it just seems a little like, whoa, wasn't ready for that. You know, that's it, the end. The, the point of quoting these verses is not to state, we're right and they're wrong. We've got God on our side and you're just a bunch of... That's not the point. The point is simply to, that, that all are under the power of the evil one until God enlightens the eyes of our hearts and understanding. And we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the moment we believe the gospel, we belong to God. Before we believed, we were opposed to God. And see, this is one of the things that infuriates people in this, in this conversation. 
Before we belong to Jesus, we are enemies of God. Romans 5 states it clearly. Colossians 1 says we were hostile to the ways of God. (laughs) And we are in God's family only because of his grace. Who wants to be thought of as opposing God? In fact, many of the arguments for same-sex marriage are framed in the love of God. God loves everyone and surely God wants everyone to be happy. We can't help who we love. And you know what? That's true. We can't help who we love to some degree. We can make decisions about what we're going to do with our feelings. But we feel like we do. And so it seems unfair. In fact, all, all of the argument is about fairness. And God never promised to be fair. He promised to be just. See, fairness is a measure that you and I, it's a, it's, it's a place that you and I come to. We determine fairness. I, what's fair to me is not fair to you and vice versa. We are in God's family only because of his grace. We are to be a light to the world and to win by love those who are opposed to God. And when I say that, I don't mean that we win souls to Christ. He uses us to bring them to himself. The church has been protected from persecution by the state in our land for a long time. Really, for as long as we have existed, of course, some would say, oh, no, no. I've been persecuted greatly. Uh, Racial issues. There are all kinds of ways that we have shown the depravity, the depths of our depravity in this nation. But the church itself has been protected from persecution by the state. The state itself has limited what it can do to combat religious freedom. It's not surprising then that we have taken our place in this world for granted. For much of our nation's history, the, the nation has looked at the church as somewhat of a check against um, immorality. Now, though, much of the world is sickened by how it perceives the church as a barrier to society that is free from judgment about personal behavior. Ironically, the church looks more and more like the world all the time. And another brilliant thought from Mr. French, once you cave in one area, it's like dominoes. You just keep going. It's not only safer For the church to live like the world, but it's a lot more fun. I mean, at the end of the letter in which John identifies Christ's followers as characterized by purity and love, he writes simply, little children, keep yourselves from idols. First John was written near the end of the first century in a place and time that was quite hostile to Christians. I think I mentioned this just recently, but... Yeah, within the last week or two about how they would crucify people on the, and, and, and put the crosses on the way to the, to the Colosseum at Ephesus, which was just as notorious as the one at Rome. And 
cover them in pitch and light them up and say, light of the world, mock, they mocked. Christians, and that's the context in which John wrote. And, and when Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians, from which today's primary text about marriage comes, persecution of the church was not quite as hot as it would be at the end of the century, but it was absolutely present, and everyone knew that it would intensify. Neither Paul nor John encouraged the church to protest or, or to withdraw from society, although they were meeting in secret. Much of the time. They encourage their readers, the followers, the, the members of the churches to live as though they belong to God. Pursuing holiness and loving one another deeply. And, and as we've talked about a lot lately, all, most of the New Testament is simply saying, get along. Quit living like you don't belong to Jesus. Live as though you belong to Jesus. Stop lying to each other. Stop stealing. Love one another. Forgive one another. It didn't speak to the big issues of the day. It just said, live like Jesus where you are. Have you ever noticed how little is written about family life in the New Testament, especially about how parents are to raise their children? Almost nothing in the New Testament about that. My guess is that in addition to relying, relying on, on the the, the Serious amount of literature written on that in the Old Testament. Husbands and wives and parents and children are expected to love one another as those who belong to Christ. It's like, here's what the Christian life is. Now you really get to experience that at home. Here's a real test for you at home. Kind of the sense that you get in the New Testament. Singleness is given a place of exalted status in the New Testament when it's considered an opportunity and a privilege to give more of oneself to the Lord, whether it's your choice to be single or it's God's choice for you to be single. If your heart is moving towards God and saying, just think of all that I can do, then What an opportunity you have to serve the Lord. The problem for all of us is that it is difficult to live for Jesus. It's much easier to blend in with the world. But we are never going to be able to serve God and blend in with the world. And when the lines are drawn more clearly, we get to identify who who truly walks with Jesus and those who are playing the game. We will always be walking against the grain on a crowded street with the masses going in the opposite direction. And some of those walking the other way will be furious because we get in their way, because we're not conforming If we're walking in purity and love, our walk tends to accentuate the differences between us and them and highlight their lack of relationship with God. And they look at us and they say, you just think you're so, and you're like, no, I don't. In fact, I'm way worse than you think I am. But I am a sinner redeemed by God, and I believe his word, and I must stand, as we heard from Martin Luther, I must stand In the place that God stands. We're not called to separate from the world. 
though we are called to separate ourselves from a secular worldview. We're not called to rise up in protest against the laws of the land, although we are called to obey the law of God even when it conflicts with the law of the land. And it's difficult in a democratic society where we have opportunity to have our voice heard, at least for the moment we do. We're not called to withdraw from society, but rather to shine as lights in an increasingly difficult and dark world. And shining in a dark world is going to offend some, but, but many will find hope in your honest walk with Jesus. The focus today, especially in light of the contemporary societal shifts, is that our marriages in this family known as Grace Community Church, the individual families, the, the, the units that make up the church, our marriages are a perfect way to point people to the transcendent hope that is in Jesus and in his love for the church. Our text is Ephesians 5, to 33. And honestly, apart from the events of this week, this introduction wouldn't have been nearly this long. I would have spent more time talking about marriage, but it all ties together. And in fact, we're going to begin in verse 15, Ephesians 5, 15, to see how Paul calls us to walk in light as believers and followers of Christ, and then for that light to shine in our homes as well. Would you please stand as we read Scripture together? Ephesians 5. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And when we realize that the days are evil, we tend to get more serious. If we are blending in, if it's all just a matter of just doing our little thing in the context of the greater good. But when we recognize the difficulty of our times, it focuses us. Therefore, Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For he, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Father, um, we read your word and we recognize that we fall far short of the standard that you give to us, that you provide for us. We also are grateful beyond our ability to express properly that you have redeemed us and brought us into your family. And we're grateful that you have given us the Holy Spirit of God to enable us to do things that we are utterly incapable of doing on our own. And so, Lord, um, encourage our hearts, convict our hearts, challenge our hearts, and change our hearts by your word this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what strikes you as we read this passage in Ephesians chapter 5 about marriage? It's by far the longest passage about marriage in the New Testament uh, on, on how husbands and wives are to treat one another. Do you think more is said to the husband or the wife just off the top of your head? 40 words to the wives, 115 words to husbands. These words were just as controversial then as they are now, but for different reasons. A hierarchical structure in what scholars would call the household table was understood as common practice in the first century. Everybody understood authority and submission in the first century. Husbands had authority over wives, parents over uh, children, masters over slaves, and those who were under the authority of someone else was called to submit. What was unique about the Christian teaching was a liberating view of the high value and divine calling that was placed on every member of the household. I mean, because in that day, it's kind of like, you know, if you're not the head honcho, then life's not so good because it's all about him, and it was always him. And so now Paul comes along and says, God places not only great value on every role in the family, but he has called you to be in this place. You have privileges and responsibilities that are associated with your place in the family. Everyone has a role. And God is impartial in the expectations that he has for each member and the judgment he will render according to each person's response. God's view of marriage was an exalted view which ran against the cultural streams of the day. Even the Jewish, the Pharisees had, 
had manipulated the law so that they could divorce a wife if she put too much salt in the food or if she burned the food. I mean, it was ridiculous the ways that they had manipulated the the law to work for themselves. Some of you are in big trouble, I can see, by the way, you're looking at, at one another. So, if you ask a man of the first century, Jewish, Roman, citizen, Greek, you, you would say, do you love your wife? What kind of question is that? What do you mean, do I love my wife? Not necessarily. I, I provide for her. I make sure she has all the needs, all that she needs in order to raise our children or my children, you know, as the case may be. Ephesians 5 is a far higher expression of love in marriage than meeting needs and providing resources. In our day, we seem to want the exalted view of marriage in which everyone has great value without the hierarchical structure. That's why so many read verse 21 into the next passage. It's all part of the context. Men and women are to submit to one another. Yes, wives submit to their husbands, but don't you see, it says we all submit to one another. You're missing the point. I mean, all believers are to submit to one another spiritually. But in the homes, wives submit to their husbands. It's as if the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul is teaching about submission, about the filling of the Holy Spirit and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another in the Lord and submit to one another in love. And while we're talking about submission, let's talk about the home a little bit. Wives, submit to your husbands. I've already told you that Paul spoke more words to husbands than wives in this passage. Peter does the opposite in 1 Peter 3. Six verses to wives, one verse to husbands, although that one verse is pretty, pretty stout. <laughs> What's true in all three passages is that the first words written are essentially, Wives, submit to your husbands, for this is right before the Lord. It was radical in the first century to say, Husbands, love your, li- love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That was radical then. Wife, submit to your husband would have elicited, of course, today is the exact opposite. Husbands, love your wives. Of course, wives, submit to your husbands. Are you kidding me? Really? I mean, we all recognize that every organization of any size requires some structure and order. We've talked about this recently with church policy, polity. In God's eyes, no one in the family, business, social, government, or church structure of any kind is less important than anyone else and less valuable than any other. Jesus' insistence that women and Gentiles be treated equally with Jewish men or Roman citizens infuriated those who were committed to the structures of the day. They would say that. Love your wives and provide for her and be willing to die for her. And it's like, are you, what are you talking about? 
Have you lost your mind? Jesus didn't seek to challenge the order, but only the way people viewed those who were called to submit. Now, those who were opposed to what Jesus said, this is going to ruin everything. It's going to, I I think the funniest thing to me in, you know, the, the, the movie a couple of years ago, Daniel Day was Lincoln, you know, and that's his name, right? Daniel Day, movie, critics. And what's that? Daniel Day Lewis. That's right. I, I stopped short. <laughs> kind of like I did on that other quote earlier today. You know, I stopped short. Um, but Daniel Day Lewis is Lincoln, and, and, and they're arguing about slavery, and actually the, the war is over, and they're talking about whether or not black men should be able to vote. And I mean, it's split right down the middle, and they're they're back and forth one will stand up and then the other one will stand up and and then someone says look if we keep going like this women will be allowed to vote and the entire place stands up no and it just seems so crazy you know in our culture in our day like how how did we how were we like that just 150 years ago but see here's the thing paul is not saying the order is bad he's saying the abuses of the order are bad. Paul would not have needed to explain the command from the Lord for wives to be submissive in his day. Now, I want to say that. Look, nobody here thinks that you should stay women in an abusive relationship. Jesus gives you the right If your husband is unfaithful to divorce and while always it's best if reconciliation can happen. Jesus gives you that right. That was something that no woman had any right. It was one of those things that infuriated the people of the day. Actually, he was talking to men, but because of his high value on women, they were given the same rights. Didn't work out that way socially. But nonetheless, Jesus had this exalted view of every human being. And people understood the consequences. Uh, The submission that the Lord calls for, though, in verse 22, can only be the result of a voluntary response to God's design. Should never be coerced by a husband trying to break his wife's will, or nor should it be Submission, that is nothing more than servile submissiveness. Peter O'Brien says this, subordination smacks of exploitation and oppression that are deeply resented. But authority is not synonymous with tyranny. And the submission to which the apostle refers does not imply inferiority. Paul, again, would not have needed to explain his command from the Lord for wives to be submissive in his day. But he wouldn't explain it if he were here today, given it either. It's just God's command. If you follow contemporary thought, a biblical marriage model is not only antiquated, but it is ridiculously unfair. That word of the day. Of course, leaders in biblically established relationships 
always have more accountability to God than the followers do. But in a world in which seeing is believing, that just doesn't mean that much. Like, oh yeah, well he's going to have to pay one day. That doesn't help me right now. For those of us who do believe, husbands, we should not take our responsibilities lightly. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Much is made of the great responsibility the husband has for his wife. Not only loving her sacrificially, but dying for her if the Lord so calls him to do. Even though the husband is clearly stated as the head of the home, he is never called to rule over his wife. He's called to love her. You ever meditated for a long time, just for a period of time, about Jesus' love and his sacrifice for you? What it must have meant for him to be separated from the Father even though he was equal to the Father as God, to endure the equivalent of an eternity for hell, of hell for you and me, and his willingness to do that and give his life for the church. Husband, do you love your wife that way? Do you forgive her and serve her and cover her with grace? Well, she's not very submissive to me. I'm sorry, but aren't you the one a while ago who was thinking amen on all of the submission stuff about the wife to the husband? It's no more legitimate for a wife to say, well, he doesn't love me. He has to earn my respect. He has to earn my willingness to be submissive to him. She doesn't have to do anything to earn your love. You don't. He doesn't have to do anything to earn your respect. That's just a command from God. And that's not very easy today. And I recognize, I recognize there are things about her that are tough to love. And there are things about him that no person in his or her right mind can respect. And yet, that's what we're called to, isn't it? Love. And respect. If Jesus' self-sacrifice is the model for the husband's love, then spiritual growth, spiritual purity is the goal. Ephesians 5, 26 and 27 are almost certainly patterned after Ezekiel 16, verses 1 to 14, in which God is described as the one who cares for and washes and marries and adorns his people with splendor. The more you know about the Old Testament, the more you recognize that the New Testament is just a rewriting of the Old Testament with Christ in view. So much of the imagery comes from the Old Testament and now that Christ has redeemed us, we see it more fully. God is still God. He never changes. He's always been pursuing his people. He's always been clean, cleaning and marrying and adorning 
his people with splendor. The gospel is in view when Paul refers to Christ washing the church by water with the word. The apostle almost certainly refers to the time Christ will return when he says that he will clothe the church in perfect splendor. What love Jesus has for us. And what love husbands are called to give their wives. We are to love our wives as we love our own bodies, not treating them with the disregard that we would treat ourselves. We wouldn't treat ourselves. I mean, how do you shave? Very carefully, right? In the mornings, guys. You know, when something dangerous is at hand, you take care of yourself. Take care of your wife in the same way. Being the spiritual leader of the home is very much in view in our text. And if you don't know how to be a spiritual leader in your home, join a home group and get someone to mentor you, even if he's much younger than you, because he's further along in the Christian life than you are. Say, so how do I do this? How do I become the spiritual leader? And wives, let them lead. I can't tell you how many times I've seen wives, oh, I just want it so badly. And then it happens, and it's like, whoa. You know, the order is out of place. We've got to work together. God is... God hasn't called us to be one person. He's called us to be one flesh. And sometimes there's friction becoming one flesh, you know. And there's this grating. But this is the plan. This is the process that God brings us together and makes us so much better as one flesh than we were. As two separate people. But see, here's where the whole thing it hinges on our relationship with God, which is why that you do not have to be married to be this complete person. The New Testament would indicate what we have heard abused through the years, I'm going to be married to Christ. But it's true. That if you are without a partner on this life, your heart can be fully devoted to Jesus. Whereas if you're married, there are things that must be attended to. Paul makes that really clear in 1 Corinthians 7. When we are married, as we follow God's design, it's a beautiful thing. But again, most of us take our cues for what really is fulfilling, what really makes us happy. Not from Scripture, but from the world. We just don't believe. You are to lead husbands, not drive or control. And that goal can only be achieved if you're growing together spiritually. And to fail in this area is to hate your own flesh. In fact, for both men and women, to love your spouse is to love yourself. You know that's true. Even if it's been a long time since it was the case, you know it's true. Why should we submit in love as we are called to in this passage? Because verse 31 tells us we are members of his body. We are part of Jesus because we are members of his body. When our marriages are lived with Jesus at the center, Jesus in mind in accordance to God's design, then the world can't help but notice something is different. And how tragic it is 
that when it gets right down to it, there's very little difference in us and the world. Once again, sharp definitions about what it means to be a Christian are helpful. They're difficult, but they're helpful. Verse 31 begins with, therefore. Why? Because in in a mind-blowing way, Paul is connecting New Testament marriage and, and, and he's connecting New Testament marriage and the marriage of Christ and his church or the union of Christ and his church with the creation order. The two shall become one flesh. We are members of his body. Essentially, as Paul, Paul is saying, that the marriage in Genesis 2 is based on the model of the marriage between Christ and his church. Now, that will mess with your mind if you're real linear, you know, in your thinking. What messes with your mind even more is that what happened in Genesis 2 was before the fall. And yet, this marriage between Adam and Eve is based on the union between Christ and his church, which then becomes our model for our marriages, and our marriages should reflect the union of Christ and his church. No wonder Paul says this mystery is profound. It is deep theology, but good theology is intended to serve practical ends. Thus, in summary, again in verse 33, the husband is to love his wife, the wife is to respect her husband. And if you're tempted to think because of our culture that respect is a bit of a strong word, it would actually be better translated fear as in fear the Lord, that kind of respect. The you in both cases is singular. Each one of you must do this. And so loving and so respecting, you serve the Lord as he has called you to do. So, let's be frank. It is difficult to live according to God's standards. It's just tough. Primarily because we all live with the old nature still as a part of us until we are gloriously wedded to Jesus at the great marriage, the great marriage supper of the Lamb, the great marriage between Jesus and his church, whom he has cleansed, he has cleansed his church, and he will adorn her with perfection on that day. We try day in and day day out to manage the old Adam that is in us. You know, we... We've got Adam in us apart from Christ. And when Christ, we are in Christ now, but the old Adam is still in us until the day we stand before Jesus and it's totally eradicated. He's totally gone. Uh, Right now, though, we are trying our best to keep the old man down. But the only hope for the old man is to kill him and to let the Lord kill him. It's the only hope. Unfortunately, the old man is a lot like Jack Bauer. I mean, if he's dead at the end of one episode, he'll be alive at the beginning of the next, or they'll bring him back to life. You can never count out old Jack, and you can never count out old Brad. I'm sorry, Allison. (laughs) Old Brad is alive and well, 
but he's crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, and all of that. Our only hope is for the life of Jesus to flow through us. And it always gets back to him, doesn't it? When he does, the world will take notice. Even if they call us hateful and spiteful for our biblical stance on marriage. It's not up to to us to fight for God's law to be the law of the land. Although we have the privilege for now to speak up in our democracy. But our chief responsibility is to live as those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And that pertains to married and single alike. Let's pray. As we pray, I'm going to ask the servers uh, for communion and for the worship team to come forward. Lord, we recognize that we are inadequate to address things that are so weighty in our day. But we also acknowledge a sufficiency of Christ and the sufficiency of your word. And we thank you for giving us clear instructions in a day that confusion abounds and yet Lord we have to constantly learn how to live and walk in the spirit according to biblical principles and standards with love in our hearts for one another for those who disagree with us and for our enemies who seek to hurt us How we do that is constantly, our understanding is constantly growing. And so, Lord, we pray that as we seek to move forward, uh, not in a day that is terribly dissimilar to what it's been for a while, but a day in which um, our place in our society may rapidly deteriorate we pray that you would just give us wisdom we pray that you would give us trust in our hearts that you are sovereign and that you are good we pray that you would give us boldness when we may not be so inclined but boldness that is never mistaken for vitriol for hatred but boldness that is anchored in Christ. We thank you for bringing us into your family. And as we come to this table, we remember our connection with you and our connection with one another. We remember the sacrifice that Jesus paid because we were incapable of making ourselves acceptable to you. But you, Lord, through your great plan of sending your son to die for us, made a way that you can be just and justifier of the ungodly. We're ungodly. And the only way we can be be justified is in Christ. And so if there are any today who don't know Jesus, may they cry out in their hearts, I'm a sinner and I need you to save me.
And I put my trust in Christ, my only hope for salvation. Thank you for your love in Jesus' name. Amen.